You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with Nelson Kinnersley about knowledge sharing and what it means for you. Nelson is a really, really nice statistician and a really knowledgeable statistician. He shares lots of his knowledge in articles on LinkedIn and on his website. So go to the references and then click through to his LinkedIn page and also to his consulting company where he publishes all this nice content to learn a lot about the industry and how to develop Uh, new therapies in a very, very smart way. Today we are talking about knowledge sharing and that is quite close to my heart of course because that's what I'm doing here all the time. So keep on listening and uh, what it means to you we'll have a lot of discussion. We'll, and that is actually important for you irrespective where you work. We'll go into this as well and also discuss a little bit what the future will bring. Is peer publishing that? Listen to what we are talking about. As we are talking about talking, please talk to your colleagues about this podcast and help them also to benefit from it. The wider we spread the word, the better. And if you love this podcast, others might love it as well. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. The reduced rate is only £20 for non-high-income countries and only £95 for high-income countries. So head over to the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. There's a lot of material coming up for in these different webinars, so for around the world next year. So stay tuned for that. Welcome to another podcast episode of the Effective Statistician. This time it's again with uh, Benjamin and we have a guest today, Nelson. Hi, Benjamin. First of all, long time since we talked, so uh, great to catch up again on on the podcast here. Yeah, it's been a while, and I'm uh, really looking forward for today because we have a very special guest, Nelson. And um, Nelson uh, Kenesley, who is um, probably quite known to some some of you guys, and Uh, yeah, maybe um, Nelson, can we make it start with you and just introduce yourself so so we know who you are and uh, what you're doing and why, maybe why you're here. Great, yeah, thanks Benjamin and also Alexander for that uh, introduction. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, there are probably a number of people that I've met over the years that that might be familiar, but I'm sure um, there are many, many more working in the industry and listening to this that that haven't come across me. So um, and actually, yeah, just reflecting or, or 
a li- little bit of preparing for this. I was wondering, wh- wh- when was it that I first learned about statistics or, or, or heard about it? And um, I actually uh, did a, an A-level. So, you know, those outside the UK, that's the exams you take when you're 18. And um, uh, I did statistics there and, you know, learned that you could actually get jobs in statistics. I didn't know exactly what it was, but I thought, well, when I went to university, I wanted to do a bit more statistics. So I did a uh, maths degree that had about 50% statistics content in there. Um, and medical statistics was one of the final year options. And uh, that was taught by Richard Kay, who used to be at the University of Sheffield. And I think many people know Richard Kay as a consultant and, you know, courses and uh, various other activities. Um, so he w- he's certainly been, um, uh, you know, there on my journey with uh, statistics. Uh, anyway, yeah, uh, after my bachelor's, I went and got a master's in medical stats and um, really, you know, love that. And But I didn't know exactly what kind of job. So I actually went back and spoke to Richard, uh, who was still at the University of Sheffield uh, at the time. And he and he said, yep, yep, you, you can get uh, jobs in this. And in fact, I'm, I'm setting up a new CRO. I'm leaving the university and setting that up. So this was uh, back in 1990. And I um, managed to secure a job. I was employee number seven. I remember that. And uh, it was a you know, specialist statistics and uh, data management CRO. And um, since being uh, bought by Parexcel. So that, that was, if you like, you know, going from education into my, my first job. Had a fantastic time there at S-Cubed as it, as it was. And then um, I realized that, that what I wanted to do next was, was move into industry. I, you know, having worked for many different uh, clients, as, as I know, you know people do in, in CROs, notwithstanding they'll have you know, changed since I was uh, I was there. Um, I, I knew that the next step was in industry and, you know, trying to understand a little bit more in, in depth. So I moved to um, Sanofi and um, joined their um, UK group there and got increasingly involved with some of the projects, drug development, management. And the next step after that was actually going ind- independent. And I was a consultant for uh, four years. I mean, I think it was roughly four years. Um, before um, then moving to Roche in the year 2000. And uh, I think that's where I've certainly spent the bulk of my career at, um, at, at Roche in various roles, you know, project statistician, individual contributor, manager, and uh, doing various other things along the way. But that's a fairly long introduction, and I'm sure we can, if necessary, touch on some of those points over, but maybe just gives the audience a little bit of a of a, a flavour for you know how I uh, got to uh, where I am uh, today as an independent consultant. Yeah, and today we have actually a very very interesting topic to to speak about, and that is knowledge sharing. Knowledge sharing about statistics, about what we all do, about our business acumen, and uh, basically you know helping each other through a pretty big community to overall increase the knowledge of our community to help each other to cross boundaries and so yeah it perfectly fits with this podcast because this is one of these platforms where we can that we can use to share knowledge and and bring people together let's get a little bit of into into this nelson from your point of view 
What do the industry organizations, so Roche and other companies, play a role in knowledge sharing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Alexander. And I, I, I do find the topic of knowledge sharing, you know, fascinating. I, I think, you know, I, I've certainly listened to many, many of the podcasts that you and Benjamin have put together, and, and the idea of continually learning is, you know, comes up as a, as a theme with a number of your um, episodes and, uh, and other other speakers being being curious. And I, I think that that's something which I've which I always have strived to do is, is, you know, keep learning, but, but also in various roles that I've been in, you know, that's one of the responsibilities, you know, whether it's as a manager talking with individuals that might report into you or it's working on teams and, you know, maybe someone's learned something on the team and, you know, how do you learn from them? How can you um, um, convey that? So I think this is a, you know, a, very, very close to my heart. This this topic of knowledge sharing. So, so specifically, you're asking about you know industry organisations and mm-hmm. you know particular you know the one that I think most of us are, mo- uh, are most close to PSI and you know other ones uh, affiliated with uh, FSPI etc. Um, and I think you know some of the bigger organisations arguably have a bigger potential to offer these. So you know maybe. Um, a department of 40 or 50 statisticians amongst that, you know, 5%, 10%, it it, it can make quite an impact for uh, an organization like PSI. Maybe that's working on SIGs, so the special interest groups, maybe it's leading some of these, perhaps some of the scientific committees and other things like that. And, And certainly I wouldn't like to say that, you know, the, the bigger organizations should necessarily dominate, but that they should, certainly have an opportunity to have their fair share. Many of them, of course, have larger premises and, you know, meeting rooms and and facilities that can then host some of these events. So it could be, you know, sessions for the intro to industry that PSI runs, or maybe it's, you know, particular days. So I think that's somewhere where, you know, um, big pharma and the larger organizations can play their role. So that's at least just one or two comments, but I'm, you know, interested to hear your own views. You know, you work for two different organizations. What's your views on, on, on what big pharma can do in that? Yeah, actually, in terms of the uh, ITIT course that you just mentioned, we have an episode on that as well. So if you're just listening to this and wonder what that is, you know, after this episode, just scroll back in your podcast player and and find this uh, episode as well, especially for people that are earlier in their career, very, very helpful uh, program. But going back to the question in terms of the different organizations, I think it's these across company organizations like we have in Europe with FSPI, PSI, like in the US with the ASA, like lots of different parts of the world, so it's about metrical organizations. These are really platforms where we can help each other to grow both from a um, technical point of view, so learning about Uh, better ways to analyze our data, drive forward these innovations, and also where we can learn about how we can, you know, more effectively work. What are, you know, better processes? What are better personal behaviors in terms of uh, working together? And so these organizations offer a lot of opportunities there to learn. But of course, they completely depend on the 
times that people spend in it. And most of it is, is volunteering time. Um, but I think, you know, the, the companies that basically do um, make this possible <laughs> by giving their people the time to work on this uh, and that pay the salaries of these uh, volunteers, they get also a lot back because whenever there's someone speaking from any company and at any of these uh, events or is helping there, that gives visibility to these organizations. And visibility in these parts, I think, is really important for making sure that you can attract talent, that you can you know, fill open positions with the right people. And if you're well known as a organization in these parts, then people will see, yeah, I like the people that work there. I've seen them speaking here and there, and that looks like a great organization to work for. And it's something completely different when you, you know, then have an organization and you look into who's actually part of that. I've never heard about that. Um, so from my own point of view, I would always try to, you know, move into a company where there's people that are active on, on these organizations rather than into an organization where I've never, that I have never heard about. Especially if you, if you require or desire this, this type of um, involvement yourself. So then you know that the companies are supporting this. Yeah, and maybe, I mean, just, just going back also when you, uh, since you mentioned the um, previous podcast, I think uh, we, we already touched this, um, that, that the, the environment that we as a statisticians in, in the pharmaceutical industry and, and also in the CRO side, they're growing up, it's, it's unique. It's unique in a way um, that we do have these organizations and that the sharing is is so open. So we really learn from our competitors in, in, in stats. It's not not about the you know the um, <clears throat> the product itself, but in, in stats. So we we have a lessons learned basically because they somebody already did it and did it wrong or did a mistake, and we learn from other people's mistakes. So we help each other in a unique way, which I I'm not sure. I mean, you know, given the history that we all have, I'm you know I'm, I'm I don't know if this is really existing in other areas, but it's it's really amazing and impressing um, for us as statisticians to have the opportunity to to learn and to share the knowledge um, as, as we currently do. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would agree with, with both those. And I'm I, you know, certainly very much in, impressed by what I hear and see and also attend, you know, be it a webinar, be it, you know, some of special interest groups, um, et cetera, that, uh, you know, PSI, ASA uh, put on. But I, I think also maybe a bit of a call out for DIA, you know, the, the Drug Information Association. Um, many people will be familiar, but, you know, in case there are some that aren't. I, I can remember going to my first DIA conference and, uh, you know, they put them on in the US, but, you know, Europe and, uh, and elsewhere. And I, I found that to be such a enriching, rewarding experience going to one of those, particularly early on in my career, because not only do you get exposed to these statistical tracks that, you know, maybe you're more interested in arguably, but, but there are so many other tracks that are going on and, you know, you can dip in, maybe there's nothing, you know, particularly on the statistics track you want to go to at 11 in the morning. So you just walk along and, you know, you might go into a clinical one or you might go into a quality one or a manufacturing or a commercial one or something like that. And I'm not necessarily advocating, advocating that you know people go to 
one of those conferences every year or something. But um, for those who haven't been to something like that, where it's cross-functional, maybe take a look at one of those programs and, uh, and see whether that's something that could you know, help you learn. But also maybe you want to present at and then have a slightly more diverse audience. Yeah. Yeah, very good. And that's also a great opportunity to improve your presentation skills. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we can all do that. Yeah, all... yeah. So in terms of um, tools, platforms, what do you think is, you know, from your point of view is out there that has helped you most to gain knowledge, but also share your knowledge? Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, clearly the, the most obvious are the journals. I, you know, that's something where, you know, cutting edge, new, peer-reviewed um, information is is going to be, you know, initially um, uh, put out there. Um, but I think in, increasingly what I'm uh, attracted towards is what's happening around in some of the social media platforms. And um, I think in, in particular, looking at something like Twitter, something like LinkedIn um, for actually almost the next level on from a journal article. You know, a, a journal articles are, are brilliant for outlining, you know, what's a problem? How do we tackle it? What's the innovation? Maybe there's an application. Often there's an application in there as well. Wonderful. But I think there's then something on from that, which is, how do you use this information? What's the consensus on this methodology? And, and I think if one only confines oneself to a journal and then maybe a response to a journal or a retraction or something like that, then you're missing out. And what I found is, um, and, you know, we're in a recording this at the time of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, there's a lot of debate that's, that's going on, you know, and, lurk or you know observe some of the debates in in twitter which are talking about some of the vaccine trials which are talking about some of the uh, treatment uh, trials you know some really eminent statisticians who are contributing to that and I, i find that to be you know very rewarding because you know i may have my own views on something or i may have seen something reported but when one sees that that kind of you know rich debate is going on i, I find that that's something that i'd like to pay um some attention to uh, i also mentioned the linkedin platform and you know it's uh, i'm still wrestling and getting to grips with what that looks like and you know what what good looks like and 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 how how best to so i'm you know eager to hear your insights and, and how best to use that but there's another platform that i think is slightly different from what twitter could offer it is different from what a journal platform offers um and is it going to wither and die on the vine i'm not sure because you know heavy investment from microsoft in the linkedin uh, platform it probably isn't going to wither but have we got the best out of it yet um i don't know i don't know i don't know you know do you have particular views yourselves on the use of these uh, platforms so in terms of journals you know um my first frustration about journals was one of the reasons why i started the podcast because you know it takes forever to publish an article and then there is a you know very often says that you get a lot of comments from uh, the reviewers which of course is a great thing but it, it's always kind of you know 
still having your own voice in there and you want to maybe uh, um, publish something that is not com completely kind of, you know, streamlined and, and things like that. And you want to have a debate and you want to have more kind of um, opinion things, things uh, and things like that. And there, I think, kind of the, the usual way of uh, peer-reviewed journals is neither fast, yeah, not easy. And so I think there is where, um, for example, here's a podcast or Twitter or LinkedIn comes in because it is fast and easy and you can have an opinion and you can debate in very much like real time rather than, you know, uh, write a paper, get it submitted, get it accepted, which maybe takes one and a half years and then you get, you know, responses and then another responses which take a couple of months you know especially when you think about uh, COVID-19 that's happening so rapidly yeah and lots of what we are doing is is you want an answer now not not in two years yeah so um, this is where I think the, these other platforms can play a big role yeah especially as you as you do you know do link in existing platforms so it's not a like a full competition in terms of you know replacing publication platforms or anything it is you know you can also make use of the publication platforms and link it into your profile and to your to the to the discussion to really you know cross um cross share or cross link uh, different sources and everything on these platforms. so i think this is an extremely um important and and vivid uh, way of of driving Uh, things along uh, in, in terms of knowledge sharing and also in terms of the, the, the discussions, no? as you men yeah. mentioned. Yeah, a, a couple of comments. I, I, I certainly would agree that there is going to be a continue to be a place for peer-reviewed strong journals that you know that reflect a deep amount of of work. You know, if if somebody wants to you know spend months for good reason on some maybe some simulations or, or some some theory yes that that is ultimately going to be able to help us and, and we can rely on that when we're putting into practice I, I think one of the the things that we could do a better job is closing the gap between theory and practice and I think arguably many of the journals and particularly pre you know COVID have been very much based in the old ways, the kind of paper, you know, a, a journal gets, you know, published and people read a table of contents. They decide which abstracts that they want to read. And then of those, which are they going to do? And then they might pass it to a friend or a colleague, or oh, why don't you read this? And, that, that. and then somebody decides, oh, maybe we could implement this in our team. And maybe it gets knocked back. And then, you you know, someone shows leadership. And, it's put, and, and before we know we are, it's many years between theory and practice and, and maybe, maybe this is a little bit of a challenge to some of those journals that you know why let the twitters and the linkedin and other platforms be the only place that debate happens you know if, if some of these journal websites open themselves up to more real-time debate and they've got the, the the publications they're right there and they can have that debate in their platform, why wouldn't we also use that? I'm not saying everybody would use it and then, you know, the absence of those. But, but I, I think that there may be something that 
some of these journal platforms could really think about doing is helping to close the gap between theory and practice and use that communal debate consensus um, in a, a faster way to do that. So anyway, that's just just something that I've been, you know, pondering over. I have no way currently to influence any of the big journals to do that. But if some of the listeners do, maybe they'd like to take it on. Yeah, I think the, the difference is also that the platforms are usually like, like LinkedIn. These um, platforms have a brighter um, range of, of, lis of listeners or well, readers. So basically, usually the, the uh, uh, publication platforms are more focusing on a very, you know, tiny, specific part of the um, of the readers like statisticians uh, while in linkedin you get crossover you know programming or other areas which is connected to it it might be interested even if it's diff completely different you know psychologists or you know people that are interested in yeah. a specific topic so that might be an advantage at least for for linkedin or and and these platforms because this is more um open and easier to access uh, already to 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 wider branch yeah. Yeah, I think this is, you know, also in these, it's very transparent and open, yeah, and real people talk to real people, and there is not kind of, you know, anonymous, you know, big organizations or, or journals, it's, you know, there's Nelson talking to Benjamin and Alexander, and not, you know, Wiley talking to someone, um, <laughs> and so I think people appreciate that. Yeah, and then you can have a real debate about things. And um, you, it's okay to have, you know, to come up with an opinion and then, you know, revise it um, and uh, share ideas and share tips. Um, I think also in terms of, you know, tips and tricks, it's impossible to publish, you know, little tips. <laughs> Whereas, you know, on LinkedIn, it takes you five minutes to uh, share that with the world and to let your friends and your community know about, hi, um, there's a cool new feature of R. Uh, have you seen it? Have you applied it yet? And, or there's, you know, I, I, or ask a question, you know, I struggle to get this implemented. Anybody that can help me. Um, these type of things are, not possible in, in journals. And I think this is where where kind of it, these platforms help us to realize the theory. And uh, it's it's really fast and easy. Yeah. I, and to bring it back to, you know, one of the things that's, you know, part of this podcast theme about how that may be different in big organizations versus the smaller ones. You know, those people who are or have been part of big ones will know that just by sheer numbers you can you know turn to somebody now whether that's virtually turning to somebody in these days where there's a lot of remote working or it's actually turning to somebody um but you know you have that trust or you can ask that silly question or you can put a, an intranet posting out with anyone help me with that i think for those people who are maybe part of smaller organizations or they're smaller departments within big organizations maybe some of these external platforms are one of the only vehicles or one of the few vehicles where they, they do they do get those tips and uh, and and tricks so i think that you know that that could be one of those differences between the big and the fall is is the the greater use of some of those external platforms by people who um may be in the in the smaller departments and smaller organizations yeah 
Yeah, sure. If you are working in an organization that has, don't know, 500 statisticians and has a special group uh, with advanced knowledge statisticians, well, there's always someone that, you know, is really good in a specific area. Um, but even, you know, with all the statistics part being becoming faster and faster in terms of new developments with all the data science or the computer technology becoming available. I think at a certain point, even these big organizations uh, will struggle to have an expert on everything. And um, also, you know, it becomes a problem of communication and connection in these big organizations as well. It's, you know, if you're working in a big organization, you, know, you don't know anybody, uh, everybody anymore. Yeah, so, so there's the connection and the relationships might even be easier for people that you have outside of, of the company. So I think there's, you know, there's probably both sides. And then, of course, there's the kind of, you know, if you post a question internally, people may, may ask, well, shouldn't you know that? Or, you know, or maybe you have the feeling that people would ask this question, or maybe you feel bad about, you know, this and then. That depends, of course, on the company culture. If, you know, people are encouraged to share questions, and, and or is it a company culture where you are expected to be a know-it-all? Yeah, so... That's yeah. also another topic. <laughs> yeah, I recognise that one. That one could be a conversation for another day. Culture, and I, I know you've, you've you've spoken quite a bit about it on some of your previous podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we did we t we touched the topic about the um, you know the, the knowledge sharing, and that is where you know where I wonder. You said that you you moved from Roche to to your own consultancy. Um, so, what is your well, first, maybe maybe let's start with, uh, you know, has there been anything, you know, s surprising in, in setting up your own business? I mean, must be different. I mean, you you uh, you, you had it before, long time ago, but is it different now? Yeah. And so, and also, I would like to know. So, what what is your focus? And because you know, if we if we talk about knowledge sharing, that seems to be a little bit contradictory uh, in in being a consultant because you know, obviously, everything is available. So, why do we need a consultant then? Yeah, <laughs> excellent. I, I like your uh, challenging questions, Benjamin. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, so the, you know, there were a couple of things that you kind of, you know, uh, mentioned in there. And, you know, yeah, I, I think one of the things that's, you know, recognizable about a big organization is that they can draw on many, many more resources often, often, you know, whether it's a full wide access to every journal that's you know, forever there that they pay a subscription and every employee can get access to it or, they maybe have a bigger training budget than some of the other organizations or people who do go on those um, conferences that may not be yourself come back and do a conference trip or a report, you know, things, things like that. So I certainly think there is a potential for more access to information and knowledge, you know, in a large organization. But I, I think, and, and, you know, this is, to me, this is not a grass is always greener on one side than, than the other. I think, you know, there are just different things that one can do. So, you know, in a smaller organization or as an individual, you know, at a consultancy, there really is so much out there on 
the internet or social media or you know other kind of platforms where you can do it but sometimes it's behind paywalls and and i think you know one of the things that we've seen in 2020 um through um trying to pursue knowledge about the coronavirus and and covid-19 diseases some of those larger organizations have opened up areas that previously would have been behind firewalls so to me that you know, raises the question, how, how much will people be willing to pay for subscription-based content in the future? And, and what's the, the price that they're willing to pay for that? And what will the added value be, given that some of this, you know, release behind that, that paywall? I, I don't have any magic answers, but I think it, it does raise the question, and, and people will be increasingly asked about that. We see many more open platforms for people publishing and in putting, you know, copies of their, their work in, in, in open platforms. So I think that, you know, one could say that there were advantages in the former days by being in a large organization because you had all these subscriptions and all these, these reports. But in the future, I'm not sure that that gap will be so large and that, that people who um, can have access to the information in, in real time and discuss and debate that will allow that kind of more seamless transfer of knowledge sharing of uh knowledge so i think you know we we live in interesting times and you know if you had this podcast in two years time three years time four years time it'd be interesting to see how much of that has changed over there so there's just a a, a couple of thoughts about you know what that knowledge sharing uh, aspect the big versus um, small and the other thing i want to say before i um just pauses you know it's very early days for me moving out of a big organization where I was at for 20 years so you know please don't take this as some you know wonderful you know meta-analysis and 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 review of what it's like in every big farmer versus every small organization so it's you know but but yeah it's early days and I know you've had other podcasts um Oliver from Cogitas, uh, who'd you know made a, a a similar move. So you know, yeah, just let's just just you know keep sharing. I, I don't believe that you know there is always a good on one side of the fence and always bad on the other. I, I think there are trade offs, but in but there's also that's not static, and and I, I think things are evolving with with knowledge sharing and will continue to. Yeah, completely agree. In terms of these sometimes actually quite expensive journals. I wonder whether, you know, one time one, someone sets up a, a, a blog or something like this where people can uh, publish something, other people critique it, review it, and then, you know, you have a nice kind of transparent peer review process where in the end you have a, you have a final paper there. And something where, you know, you directly see, okay, who has peer reviewed it, what was the conclusions from the author on it, and what were the correction. I don't see, you know, why that wouldn't be, you know, as helpful as the current big peer review journals. I think the one of the kind of questions around it is the the prestige and, and things like that, this kind of impact factor topic and, and you know, our whole kind of academic system is, is based on, you know, all of this. I think uh, that is something that probably needs to be disrupted, but I completely agree, you know, um, 
we don't need paper prints anymore. Who reads paper prints really? Yes, so, so of course there's still kind of big libraries of all these kind of things, but but even when you know about 25 years ago when I was you know sitting in, in the library, I you know I would rather you know download the PDF copy of it than try to find the, <laughs> the respect of journals somewhere in the library. So maybe just just to you know, in the scenario you described of this kind of iterative work towards a final, let's call it publication, you know, it might be a paper, we, we can call it what we like, but, but that kind of iterative process, I, I think, firstly, I, I agree it's more attractive. I, I think it could arguably mean that more people get to do it because, you know, my perception of this is, and, and actually based on, you know, experience of talking and, and, identifying barriers to publication is people or some people feel they're not worthy of it some people f feel that the effort to do it may not be worthwhile it may something may not get accepted and that could mean that some valuable information or a valuable perspective is not being shared and maybe a more iterative approach is more likely someone will get started someone will get excellent feedback during that and ultimately the work can get out there sooner and you know the final consensus will be valuable for it so i i think the iterative ideas has got a number of um appealing elements but ultimately having something in an archive that we can all go and benefit from at the end of it would be wonderful um I won't get on my hobby horse about incentivizing an idea of, of academic journals and things like that. But uh, if you're interested, maybe uh, in, in that, we can, we can ponder over that. But I think, yeah, the incentivization of the, you know, uh, the status and kudos is something that um, I have a couple of views on. Yeah, but you have started recently on LinkedIn a really interesting series. You have published a couple of different longer documents in terms of how to um, how to structure development, what are kind of the different topics there. Um, and I think that is a really, really nice yeah, step into this direction. Yeah, to publish something um, on a journal on a platform like LinkedIn, where people can then you know share it freely, give feedback to you, therefore kind of have a little bit of this iterative process. What what's your experience with that? Well, I, I thank you for those kind words. I, I it's early days, as you say. I, I, you know, at the time of recording, I think there's something like four or so three or four maybe four or five uh, um, articles out there uh, perhaps by the time this goes live there'll be a, a, a few more but um yeah you know my thinking behind starting to publish those short articles you know four or five pages was you know a reflection of some of those early moves out of big pharma and working for myself and and thinking you know, have I got something that I could share? And, and you know, if I get zero views and zero reactions, uh, no, Nelson, you've got nothing to share. So, you know, <laughs> stop writing. Fine. That's okay. But, but the, the initial feedback from some of those articles has been helping motivate me write one or two more of those articles. And, you know, um, I, I'm sorting out in my own mind what the kind of target audience is. But what I think it is, to me is the team and, and by the team I mean a team developing a new drug a number of for a number of reasons uh, very good reasons 
we often focus on the individual, you know, what can I do to improve this? What can I do to improve that? Or, or what can an organization do in terms of its culture to, to do this, et cetera? I, I think there's, there's an area which I find fascinating is, is the team dynamics. You know, a team develops a molecule. It gets budget approval from senior management. But who's accountable for that team and, and helping that get better and better? Often it's the team leader great, super. And you've got the most experienced team leader. He or she will run a highly effective team. Brilliant. Every, if everybody on that team has got, you know, years and years of experience, they'll be able to bring all that to bear and everything works. But I've seen teams that have struggled. I, I, I'm sure we've all seen some, you know, sometimes we've been members of those teams where we've been the weak link in that, in that chain. And, and, you know, part of what I tried to do or have tried to do in my career is, is help people that I manage or, or, or peers help their teams. And, and it struck me that, that there maybe wasn't the kind of article or the kind of forum for discussing how do we improve drug development when we put the team at the center. Uh, maybe there is, and I just haven't found it. But I thought, well, okay, we'll just, you know, share your views, Nelson, and someone will tell you, well, you're repeating what's elsewhere. Fine, okay. Well, but the kind of feedback I have had from the early ones is that people have appreciated, you know, one perspective on that. And, you know, the first in the series of articles was about target product profiles. And, it, you know, to get feedback from people who are heads of pharmacology units, people who work in big pharma, small pharma, from statisticians and others that you know, are encouraged and have learned something and want to share super. And, you know, I've tried to continue that journey talking about clinical development planning, um, phase one trials. I've got some other articles in the work for um, other things like that, but very much an experiment with how can we help teams? Drug development is so expensive, such high risk. And it seems to me that helping teams be more effective and using LinkedIn is, is, is one possible vehicle. Okay, very good, awesome. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for, for these uh, publications there. I'm just calling them publications because you put something out there on public. <laughs> <laughs> so we have touched on a lot of, lot of different things in this uh, discussion about how, you, how we can share uh, knowledge, what are the platforms, the societies, um, what are the benefits for the individual as well as for the organizations? What is kind of maybe new and emerging and what might maybe change in terms of, you know, the subscription-based journals uh, that currently still dominate the market and how that might actually look very, very different in the future. So I think uh, as a listener, you really enjoyed this uh, discussion. Nelson, any final thoughts on this, on this topic? Uh, uh, thank you very much for a very concise summary of what's been a really enjoyable conversation. And thanks to Benjamin and yourself for you know, hosting this. And what, what I'm really interested in is feedback from the listeners. So whether they're responding to you know, your um, effective statistician webpage, whether they go on some of these LinkedIn articles, whether they 
you know, post on, on Twitter is, is that feedback, you know, is, is there more we can do? Drug development is, is expensive. We, we try and share and, you know, we have this fear of missing out sometimes with not knowing about the latest technique, but we can do that together by just helping each other, you know, get on social media, give some feedback maybe it's a one-to-one email and you know hey i don't agree with this or you know have you thought about that great let's just keep using our collective knowledge to help drug development that was an awesome final sentence thanks so much for being here and we'll surely catch up at another time thanks nelson thanks very much guys The show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain, who helps with the show in the background, and thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com, where you find all the references and much, much more to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. And please remember to tell your colleagues about this podcast. Like always, reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.